0: Uh, if you, let me just turn to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, we have this little phrase here, Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5, and it just says this, that it's a recurring theme that, that we see all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Proverbs. But Psalm 25, verse 4, it says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Guide me in your truth. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, will go to people and he'll start by saying, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. Dozens of times, even in just the Gospel of John alone, he, he starts by saying, I tell you the truth. And then when he promises the Holy Spirit, he says, the Spirit of truth It's gonna come and guide you into all truth. And truth really matters. It's something that we miss, we miss, and we, we kind of put on this stale shelf and we don't pay enough attention to it. It it's something that's really interesting with commandments, with commands. Truth is always implicit in commands. Like we react to anybody telling us what to do and when we read the bible we kind of get that sense of rebelliousness i don't like being told what to do it boxes me in and we we think commands are tyrannical in some sense but when you go to the 10 commandments and god says i'm the lord your god you're going to have no other god before me hiding behind that command is the truth that there is a god that god is supreme that god is worthy of our worship And that when you go to the second command, you begin to find something about his character, that God is not willing to share his glory with another. He's a jealous God. But there are truths undergirding commands. Do you see that? Truth is a a really big deal in this culture, in this day and age. There's a lot of my peers, and and we talk about this as pastors all the time, that react to expressions of Christianity that that are objectionable. they're, They're intolerant or inauthentic or just weird and in in reacting to those expressions they begin to think that it's the orthodoxy or the truth or the doctrines of Christianity that necessarily give rise to kind of whatever that expression is and so they they begin to try and throw away doctrine or truth or orthodox Christianity and try to find something different and we look at that As this church, we're a five-year-old church plant, we look at that and say the expression is different than the thing which, which it's coming from. Doctrine, truth, undergirding anyone's interpretation or the way they live it out is different from the expression. And when we look at a church, if something's weird, if something's funky, if something doesn't look like Christ or look the way God would want it, that expression has to be evaluated, but doctrine itself, truth, what undergirds our faith, Orthodox Christianity, is fixed. It's, it's the foundation. And so like we, we really value truth at this church. We tell people that come and they'll see poetry or art and they'll think we must not care about truth as if art is opposed to truth or emotion is opposed to reason. And and one of the things that we always tell people is, we're so orthodox, we're boring. We're boring. Because orthodoxy is something that has this long tail throughout historic Christianity, and so there's nothing fascinating or, or intriguing about Antioch because we just tie into orthodox Christianity. There's not this like this crazy thing that, ooh, that's something to talk about. No, we're actually really boring because we... We value orthodoxy, and we value doctrine, and we value truth. We do redux because we value truth. Redux is uh, Latin for brought back or restored. So after the sermon, we have this kind of Q&A service, and the whole idea is it, the, conversation, the conversation starts with you, where you're at, where, where the questions really are, and let's talk about it because we value the dialogue. We value the process of trying to get to light because light has a lot to do with truth. So we value truth, but what I want to kind of talk about for a reason here, but I, I want to kind of talk about problems with truth, which I've never talked about in a sermon, but problems with truth. Because there's some problems with truth. The first problem with truth is this. It's more elusive than we think. It's more elusive than we think. There's a view of truth that we subscribe to as Christians is called the correspondence theory of truth. And that simply means that we believe truth is what corresponds to what is. Truth is what corresponds to reality, to what is. It's the correspondence view of truth. We live in a postmodern age that says there is nothing objective about truth. Truth is whatever corresponds to what you want it to be. Or it makes your life work, pragmatic, or, or makes certain things come about or just interesting. We don't subscribe to that as Christians. We think there is absolute fixed truth that God exists, God created, and that there is a plan, a divine will, that there's an image of God and people, and that, that ethics and different things like that, they're, they're fixed and they're absolute. Problem is, is that with absolute truth, we don't always know it absolutely. So I've run into a lot of Christians that think because they're a Christian and they believe in absolute truth, that makes them right about everything in every conversation. Even though they don't have degrees that that show that they've even studied one iota about half the topics they talk about. And just because truth is absolute doesn't mean we know it absolutely. And there are certain things like math. Like logic, like science. I remember in chemistry and, and biology, when I was in engineering, there's really interesting things about those disciplines. They, they, they're verifiable because you can repeat experiments in the laboratory. And the, the repeatability is a part of demonstrating the validity and the truth in it. Mathematical theorems that can be proved over and over. And, and logic, which, which hangs together like math. These things are, are really easy to grab hold of. But when we talk about spiritual truths, just because they're a little bit different doesn't mean there is no absolute truth. And in there being absolute truths in those areas, we we can't all of a sudden walk in and talk to somebody that has doubts about something that involves faith and say, you're an idiot because you're struggling with this or because you don't know it. And just because there is truth doesn't mean that we always get it perfectly perfectly or get it right, and, and so we have to kind of wrestle with that. I want to just give a quick sketch here. Um, the Reformation in Martin Luther, most people don't realize this is really fascinating, was the, the first step in birthing modern philosophy. It was the first step in birthing modern philosophy. Modern philosophy has a lot to do with truth and knowledge. And when Martin Luther stood up 1521 before the Inquisition kind of court and said, Basically, for his writings, that unless you show me by right reason or by scripture, here I stand, I can do no other. He did something unbelievably unique, and he said one person can challenge the authority structures as to what's true. One person in their conscience can stand up against the Catholic Church, the traditions, and challenge the authority structures. And he opened kind of a tidal wave. And as it went from him, you see um, all the different things going on with Copernicus and then Galileo and then the the whole age of exploration and the changing of the map. And you have this crisis of faith as Catholics and Protestants are fighting and everything that everybody had thought was true and believed is, is turning out to maybe not be the way we thought it was. And you have this crisis of faith and so everyone's wondering How do we get to the bottom of this and know absolute truth or what is true absolutely? And so we get to this guy, Rene Descartes, and we got a picture of him because whenever you get an old dude, it's fun to show their pictures. Um, 1596 to 1650, he was raised in a Jesuit school, so he's coming in in the tradition of the Counter-Reformation and this whole idea in the crisis of truth and faith. And he writes his uh, first meditation on philosophy where he kind of goes into this mind experiment of, What if our senses aren't even telling us the truth? And what if this isn't true? What if he doubts everything to try and find one foundation that he can just anchor in? And he comes to this saying in Latin, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And what he did was he found a logical game that basically says to doubt that truth, I think, therefore I am, to doubt it. Because doubt is a part of existence. Something that doesn't exist can't doubt. To doubt it proves its truth. Does that make sense? I think, therefore, I am. So he found this foundation. Let me see if if we're working here. So he found this foundation here. Problem is, is, he had a real hard time building off that foundation. It's a lot easier to go all the way back and find this one little logical game than it was to build from that. And so, out of Descartes, you have the rise of epistemology, which is the discipline of knowledge or beliefs. How do we know what beliefs are true? What's the process of forming beliefs? And the whole game here is how do we have justified true beliefs? So, modern philosophy has been dominated by this subdiscipline of epistemology. And in it, there's this. Question, and it's one side is foundationalism. How do we get to foundations for our beliefs that are absolute? How do we get to foundations for our beliefs that are absolute? The other side comes along and says, We're never going to be able to have enough foundations down there to give rise to beliefs. So, how do we come up with criteria to evaluate what's truth? Now, the problem of the criterion in epistemology is just this. The criteria you come up with for saying what's true, how do you ground those criteria? Right? So you have this whole kind of thing of, we know there's absolute truth. Everyone knows it. But even in philosophy, when you really get down to it and you're exploring it, there's a problem of how do we get to the rock bottom or how do we develop grounded criteria that get at us for what's truth. That's why as Christians, we believe there's a criteria. The Holy Spirit is a part of that criteria. Scripture is a part of that criteria. Tradition is a part of that criteria. But if you go to somebody that's really struggling with doubt, what's the question they always ask you? How do I know the Bible's true? And they're not. Most people I talk to aren't mocking. They're just saying, man, I really struggle because <laughs> it seems like everywhere I turn, there's, I, I'm having a hard time getting to a center point. If you turn to John chapter fourteen and put a thumb there we're, you know what we're going to get back to it in just a second. You can turn to John chapter fourteen, and put a thumb in it but so the the problem with truth is it's more elusive than we think. there's a word we Christians need to learn and it's called um, certitude. We typically deal with certainty Certain, certainty is a hundred percent zero it's a light switch it's on or off. Okay, do you get that not. All the things you believe should you talk about with certainty as the language. Your views on politics, back off a little bit, (laughs) okay? Because you don't know the future, and no matter how wise you think this choice is, you don't know how it's going to turn out. It's a Plinko chip. Back off from certainty a little bit. We hold key doctrine. I'll go to the wall for Christ. Salvation by faith through grace. You are not going to get me to go to the wall on end times theory. I'm not going to lead a Bible study and tell you everyone else is wrong and I've got it absolutely right. Even Jesus was like, man, don't speculate about such things. You're going to get it wrong if you do. Back off of the certainty language. The language you should use on those things, disputable things, is certitude. Certitude, unlike certainty, is a degreed property. So you say, man, I've really wrestled with this a lot. And I have a high degree of certitude. I feel really confident in this. But at the end of the day, if Jesus comes back and I'm wrong, I'm okay with it. And we need to move kind of from certainty to certitude. Truth can be more elusive than we think. We could spend more time on that. We're not going to. Um, the second thing is we're more biased than we think. C.S. Lewis uh, Taught me about old books. Here's the thing he wrote as an introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation. So here's an old book by St. Athanasius. C.S. Lewis writes an introduction to it. It's a whole long thing. I'll read you just this, these two sentences, but he says this Every age has its own outlook. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all therefore need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. It's a whole long thing. You can go look it up. Just type in C.S. Lewis old books and you'll probably find it somewhere on Google. It's one of the most amazing chunks um, I've ever read of any writer. It's fascinating. But we're more biased than we realize. Our motives are twisted. Even when we're telling the truth about things that we know absolutely, like what's going on in our own heart. We don't really let the light shine out in all its full spectrum. We're selective, aren't we? And we have motives involved with, with what we're trying to do. I, my daughter, my youngest one, it's like the, the biggest, it's the most frustrating thing in my life. She, she, I'm nothing to her, except for when she's mad at mom, and then she comes looking for me. But she is such a mama's girl, that it's, I, I've never seen a kid that's more of a mama's girl. And this is our fourth And so I'm always, like, just hungry for that cuddle, you know, and and she she almost, like, teases me with it, you know? I mean, the only solace I have is, like, maybe she'll be that way with guys and just tease them and have nothing to do with them, you know? Um, So here's what I did. I outsmarted her. You You guys see the movie Inception? So I went four layers deep into her mind. She's, she likes the idea of being a big girl. She's got three older sisters, okay? So every night, this is what I started to do because I could never get a cuddle like Tamara would put her to bed. And I began to realize if I go in like 10 minutes later and I just hold her for a while, she sees that as a treat because she, it gets her out of having to sleep. So every night, I wait about 10 minutes after Tamara puts her to bed and I go in and I hold her. That's when I get my cuddles, right? Um, I wouldn't give that time up for anything except elder meetings once a month, um, so here's the thing. She likes being a big girl. So I, I, one night I, I started thinking, and so every night I say this to her, and, and I say, whisper it in her ear, big girls give good hugs and good kisses. Big girls give good hugs and good kisses. She, she walks around the house saying that now. Big girls give good hugs and good kisses. Now, it's true, and it expresses a deep truth in my heart, but it's about as manipulative as it gets. (laughs) And so she gives me these cheap hugs and cheap kisses just because, in her mind, you know, she's thinking, big girl's cute, good hugs, good kisses. And uh, we use truth, I think, in our bias a lot. We do. Truth is more elusive than we think, we use it in our bias, and truth is cold. Truth is cold. We have phrases like the ugly truth or the naked truth. Um, Nietzsche once said, We have art, so we may not perish by the truth. He was talking about how cold truth can be. William Lloyd Lloyd Garrison, kind of the the great American abolitionist, in the first edition of The Liberator, goes on this unbelievable rant with his writing. It's poetic, but he, he goes on and says, Don't ask me to be moderate. And he's arguing for his ext- how extreme he's going to be. And he says, I will be as uncompromising as truth and as harsh as justice. And truth can be um, cold. And I've been thinking all week. I asked permission um, from some friends of mine in this church if I could share this story. But I've been thinking all week about uh, an experience I had when I was standing graveside with them uh, burying their their daughter, who was nine months old, who had been in the hospital since the day she was born. Here and then in Portland. And they brought her back here. And it was just the three of us at a burial service. Um, cold, gray, <laughs> blustery. And I'm sitting there, I'm standing there, and uh, the glaziers are acquaintances at that point. And I remember thinking... And giving space to what was going on and thinking, truth is as cold as anything out there. And I remember just um, praying inside and going, God, uh, they they don't need truth, they need you. Truth doesn't wrap its arms around people, truth doesn't console people, truth doesn't warm hearts. Uh, They don't need truth, they need you. And so in this, uh, it was one of the more dynamic moments of my life, um, Chris Glazier at the end of this, says, I want you to pray with me that I would, I, God would come into my life, that Jesus would come into my heart, that I would have that experience of the fullness of God, and that I would know that I'm saved. And it was this unbelievable, like... Um, crazy moment of, of realization that at the bottom of all of it isn't truth but it's it's person that We're not trying to just get down to some principle or some logical theorem or some cold, hard fact. We're trying to get down to God and to anchor ourselves in God and to to tie ourselves into God and to have that relationship and to just rest there. And so this week I asked uh, Chris and Craig if I could share their story. And um, Craig came to faith partly by exploring truth, truths and doubts and fears that he had about whether God was true and so truth plays a role but at the the end of the day it's about finding God and having that relationship and um, so even this morning Chris and Craig we were talking and um, I almost felt apologetic for for wanting to tell the story And, and Chris kind of smiled at me and she said it is our belief that God sent Taylor here to change our lives God sent Taylor to change our lives. And the the story, if we were able to go into more of it, she's changed thousands of lives through being in the hospital in Portland and the faith community over there that embraced her. Um, And just even the story of what God's done, she's changed thousands of lives. And so there's a truth, different truths, faith truths that begin to emerge out of that. And you go back to... um, go back to uh, stories in the Old Testament, like Joseph. And there was a sermon preached at Good Shepherd about Taylor. This young girl dies at, eight, uh, at nine months about Joseph and how God plans things that on the surface of it seem so nonsensical, so illogical, so untrue, but then he means it for some kind of a blessing or some kind of a purpose according to what he, only he can know. And as things emerge, you begin to have this sense that there's a deep paradox about faith. It's deeper than truth even and the uncompromising nature of truth. It, it goes all the way down here and we rest in that paradox. We rest in that faith. We rest in that relationship with God. And so... We hunger for truth, truth about your mortgage, truth about losing your job, truth about your relationships. We start there with hunger, but the resolution point, the tension starts here. The resolution point usually comes in relationship through faith as we begin to see how things that seem so bad change thousands of lives. And so truth, one of the problems with truth is it can be cold. And what we need at the bottom is God. So John 14 This is kind of what is going on with Thomas when he says, Lord, we don't know how to get to God. Tell us how we get to God. And Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is basically saying to get to God, to get to the center, to get to the foundation, to get to where it's all going to find its resolution. I am the way and the truth and the very life. I'm what matters. And so as he walked around, it was a fascinating thing. He had this ministry where people would come to him with a little doctrinal bit or a little verse here a little truth paradox here, and they would always come at him. And Jesus was saying, you're looking for something here, and the whole while you're blind that the fullest explanation of it is here. Antioch takes as its first principle that we're Christ-centered It's at the foundation. It's at the core. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In Philippians, Paul echoes the same thing. It says, At him, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he ultimately is the center where it's all going to drive through. I've got a um, picture. I don't know if we, I don't know that, you know, I didn't see it on the computer back there. Is there one of Greek? Greek. I don't think there is, is there? Uh, Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of John, a lot of his statements are, are couched in the Greek phrase ego, a I am. Problem is, is the word "eimi" has in it, that verb, has in it the I. It's the, it's the um, verb for being, and it. it's the first person. So it says I am. So when you say ego, the word for I, and you say I am, it's I, I am, it's, it's a redundancy. And in the Greek language, redundancies are there for emphasis. And so in the Gospel of John, you see these ego, ami passages, all of the great I am passages where the, the writer John is trying to say when Jesus talked, he claimed a divine authority and he likened himself to God because the phrase I am all the way from the time of Moses on was the very essence of what God was, Yahweh. And so John just hammers this point home. Ego, ami. I am. Jesus did something really fascinating for his day and age too. There was, there was a, an ending that would get tagged onto sentences. And it's the Greek word amen, which we get our word amen. And it means basically truly or so let it be. And and Jesus took that and used it as a prefix. And so in the, the Gospels you see this Amen, Amen, and then he'll say what he's going to say. And the Latin for this is verily, which comes from the, the Latin veritas, which you'll see on like the Harvard emblem or cross or you know veritas, which means truth. And so you'll see, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. And so he's taking what people put at the end, he's moving it to the front, and he's saying, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, I'm claiming a level of truth and a level of certainty that other people aren't claiming. And what I speak for you is, is what's going to anchor you. You're going to hear it from me, and you're going to know that it's reliable, and you can have confidence in it. Because he knew that this whole thing about faith was so difficult, and he's saying, Listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus says in Revelation three times, and then in one of the last verses of the whole Bible, at the end of Revelation, he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we take as our centering point Christ we anchor here so that as we rotate and spin around, we don't get dizzy or off kilter. We try and find the balance and the alignment with Christ at the center. Now, we call this our first commitment. We don't call it a value for this reason. I can, maybe you're like me. Every business has got their values. And after a while, you begin to kind of think they don't mean anything. You're like, well, what's value really mean anyways? I value a good cheeseburger. I really do. It means nothing in my decision-making grid as to what really matters in my life. You know what I'm saying? A value, you can have endless things that you value, that you place stock in, but but that doesn't mean you're committed to them. And so we have four core commitments at Antioch, and the first one is that we're Christ-centered, meaning we don't just value it, we want to lean into it. It's one of the reasons we took the name Antioch. So if you turn to Acts chapter 11, it's going to be on the board here in just a second. But Acts chapter 11, you see something really interesting. You have these people, the, the, the ancient church at Antioch did not have something that we have. You know what it is? The New Testament. The New Testament wasn't written when, when the church at Antioch was founded. What did they have? They had Christ. Christ. And they were followers of the way was kind of the sentence. Followers of the way, followers of Jesus. And so in Acts it says this. It says the disciples, so Barnabas and Saul go there and they meet with the church and they're teaching these followers of Jesus. And the disciples, those who were following Jesus, were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts 11, 26. Christians meaning the ones who follow Christ. Christ, the Greek word for um, anointed one, which is what was used for the Hebrew um, Messiah. And so the ones who follow that Christ, Christians. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And so we kind of thought this is another reason we want the name Antioch because at the end of the day, we anchor ourselves, we center ourselves. In Christ, I was uh, at a wedding yesterday, it was uh, Nate and Malia's wedding, many of you might know Nate and Malia, uh, if you go to the Starbucks on over by Barnes & Noble through the drive-thru, you'll see Nate, Nate's one of the happiest, uh, friendliest guys you'll ever meet, uh, amazing guy and it's fun when you go to a wedding and you just, you can see a dude and you just get so excited about their big day, you know. But I'm there, and, and what was fascinating about the wedding is Malia's aunt is an Anglican, and she was doing the ceremony. She'd been kind of the godmother of Malia all these years and a mentor, and she's doing the wedding ceremony, and she's doing it from an Anglican kind of tradition. And I sat there, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite wedding services I've ever been to. It was much more liturgical than, than most typical Protestant weddings are. Now, liturgy, to, to try and give you just a little bit of a picture of that, liturgy is taking things, uh, traditional elements that have been framed or written, traditional prayers, traditional kind of ways of, of going through a service and, and leaning on those in worship. Now, the danger of liturgy is that it can become cold, ritualistic, or just religion. The beauty of liturgy is this, and this is where liturgy is created from and what it was aimed at. The beauty of liturgy is that it puts Christ at the center. It, it says there shouldn't be a person, there shouldn't be anything else at the center other than Christ. If we're going to talk about Christ, we're going to wear garments that take fashion out of the way. You know my wife would lose, you know, would lose her job if I wore like a gown. You know, she dresses me. Um, but the liturgy takes fashion out of the way; it takes the person out of the way, and it says we are going to walk through this thing as Christians, as people who believe in Christ, and we're going to anchor ourselves and recenter ourselves around these truths of Christ. So it was yesterday. I'm at this wedding, and I'm reflecting on this and I'm remembering different aspects of of the beauty of liturgy but it's aimed at that when we worship it's aimed at giving glory to God and to honor Christ and to hold Him up and exalt Him it's not aimed at emotions, it's not aimed at being a rock show, it's not aimed at anything other than entering into the presence of God and literally becoming a prayer language what I mean by that is The music and the words help facilitate our prayer. It pulls us into a posture of prayer a lot quicker than. It would without music. That's the beauty of instruments, right? Is they tap right into our emotions. And hopefully the words are doctrinal and they're sound and they're true and they connect with our emotions. And so in singing these songs, it's as if we're getting to pray with God and we wouldn't have gotten there had we not been doing this thing called worship. So if you ever wonder why we sing, it's because we want to worship God and we want to have this fellowship with God. And music, all the way back to the Psalms and Scripture, it's something God has ordained for this relationship as a part of the communication for this relationship. So, we're going to talk next week about what it means with our second commitment, which is authentic spirituality. But I want nobody to miss this, that at the center of this thing, this is a Christian church. We're here because we believe in Christ, because we've anchored ourselves there, and we we have the relationship that confirms itself on us. And that everything we do, the, the decisions the elders make, the decisions the staff makes, is to glorify Christ, to keep Christ at the center, and not to try and invent religion on our own. I want everyone here to know it, to know that we lean hard into it, to know that that's our center, and that we're committed to it, and it'll never change. It's important, it's important that we all have that at the center. If you would, for our prayer time, I'm just going to read out of Ephesians 5. If you would stand with me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So listen along as I read in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's talking about God giving pastors and teachers to the church, and he says to prepare God's people, that's all of us, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of of the fullness of Christ. And if this happens, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. We're not going to invent truth. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. And from him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Father, we commit this church to you. I pray that you keep us grounded and anchored in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all the things we do. And as we hear the special music now and take up our offerings and all the other things on the edge that we do in this church, let us see Christ at the center. It's in his name we pray. Amen.